John 8, uh, 7 and 8 is really filled with Jesus and uh, wrestling with his people and they're arguing about who he is and all this stuff and some of the stuff made us uncomfortable. Um, and I, I said, so it's going to be lighter because as I looked forward, I was like, look, Jesus heals a guy, heals a blind guy. I mean, that's, yay, good news. And I just envisioned this just happy day. Um, but the problem with this text that we're going to look at today um, is the disciples ask this really hard question. Uh, so, so we're going into areas that we've been before, I think. I think you have asked personally the question they ask, and that is, why? In the face of suffering, uh, the disciples say, why? Why is this man blind? Why has he never seen? Uh, so we're going to face that question this morning, and then we're going to finish with a little bit of, Yahoo, Jesus does the miracle. Um, but I think you're going to appreciate the journey uh, of wondering and questioning together, looking at the Bible, what it says about this very deep, very important question. Why, why does suffering happen? Why do good things happen? Or bad things happen, even to good people. So this is John 9, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground. And he made mud with his saliva. And he spread the mud on the man's eyes. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes this morning. Open our eyes this morning that we might see anew that we might see you freshly, that we might see life freshly, that we might be renewed, restored. May we be participating, Lord, in this transforming work that Jesus is doing. Be glorified, Lord. Amen. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They walked everywhere. Uh, they had no cars, and they didn't camel places. They just walked most of the time. And Jesus sees a man who's never seen before, a man born blind. So far in our reading through John, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that, John, that Jesus 
sees people that we don't ordinarily see. Uh, He chooses to fix his eyes where we avert ours. Uh, He sees the hopeless cases. He sees the hurting. He sees the lost. He sees the marginalized. And he, he stays there with them. This morning he sees this truly hopeless case. Remember, he saw the man at the pool uh, com- who was complaining that, that when the pool was stirred up and God's healing was supposedly coming to that pool, no one was there to help him into the pool. And the guy was complaining about this. Well, Jesus saw this complaining, whining cripple, right? He saw him and he healed him. Well, that was a hopeless case, right? Uh, this one is more hopeless. This guy's not hoping to get healing because he knows he'll never see again. He knows he's never seen and he knows he will never see. If he knows his Old Testament, and we assume he does, he's part of the community, he knows that there's no evidence of the miracle of restored vision in the Old Testament. That was something I learned new this week. The prophets, although they healed people, never healed blindness. So this guy didn't have hope. He was blind, and he knew he would always be blind. As Jesus takes notice of this hopeless case, his disciples do as well. And we hope that where Jesus' vision is unique, ours will become unique as well. So they see this hopeless case, and and their reaction is very indicative of their understanding that he has no hope for healing. Because they move from cure to cause. They don't consider that he may be cured. They wonder what caused this man to suffer so miserably for his entire life. So they ask Jesus, Teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Who caused this horrible situation? Now why do they think that anyone messed up? Anyone sinned, if you will, to to cause this blindness in the man. Why does there have to be a reason at all? Oh, there has to be a reason. Right? I mean, there has to be a reason. Our minds can't take chaos. Our minds cannot take this this notion that just stuff happens. Let me give you a small example. A few weeks ago, I woke up with back spasms because I'm guessing I had a pinched nerve in the middle of my back. I mean, it was it's the kind of pain that just takes your breath away and causes in, invulnerable sort of noises. Ha! Ah, was my favorite noise <laughs> that week. Ha! Ah. And so I didn't preach that Sunday. You notice you didn't hear me saying, this is the word of the Lord. Ha! Ah, thanks be to God. Uh, 
I mean, it was, I was immobilized by this pain. Before I called the doctor, guess what I did? I asked myself, why am I hurting so badly, right? Why? Why am I feeling this way? Why does this pain exist? Not, I got to get to a doctor and get cured, but why? Why am I feeling this way? And I racked my brain trying to think of some motion that I made, some over-exercising. Maybe I did something, you know, herky-jerky or I strained. I couldn't think of one thing. In fact, I did think of one thing, but it was so ridiculous it didn't make any sense. I kind of stumbled when I was putting my pants on two days prior. I was like, no, that just can't be it. And then I did the very thing that these disciples did. I literally thought, Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Like, what did I do? Did I screw up in some way? Like, did I, did I sin so that to make this happen? And I was like, well, nothing especially out of the ordinary comes to mind, you know, uh, you know, and the, your, your mind just goes to crazy places looking for the why. Why is this happening? Chaos messes with our brains. We need to find a reason. So when the disciples asked Jesus who sinned, caused this man to suffer. They are questioning out of their humanness, very much out of just their humanity, out of their brains, the way their brain works. And they're also questioning with some Old Testament in mind as well. Uh, The Bible is not silent about punishment for sin. I wonder if they had the second commandment in mind, which says, you shall not make for yourself an idol it goes on. This is for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Oh. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this is no simple text, okay? But if taken literally, You can see, if I am faithful to God, maybe he'll bless my descendants to the thousandth generation, literally. And if I'm not, maybe he'll curse my children and my children's children. Now, thankfully, the Bible argues with itself. Uh, It's a really great thing about the Bible. The Bible argues with itself. And it argues with itself about this notion of, of... of punishment for sin reaching down into the generations. Again, beyond the normal, like, you did that, so that's the natural consequence of your action. But literally, God's punishment. In Ezekiel 18, again in the Old Testament, that prophet speaks with God's voice as God's herald, and he says, no longer. No longer can you say, that the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And what he's saying is, what a dad does no longer affects the children in God's eyes. What a mother does no longer affects 
the children and the generations. Jesus himself rejects this idea that sin causes calamity. In Luke 13, the first five verses, he clearly states that people who die unexpectedly due to accidents are not more sinful than those who survive. He cautions instead that everyone must repent or perish. I read the news every morning just to make sure that I'm not the ignorant one. You know what I mean? Uh, I think ever since 9-11, I've not wanted to be the one that walks into a room where everyone else knows that tragedy has befallen the nation and you don't know. Um, and this morning, just like it seems like every morning, there was tragedy in the news. There's a shooting in Florida uh, or at least 20 people uh, were killed. Some... Some bar, and as the bar was closing, a gunman opened fire and just killed a bunch of people, and then the police killed him. And, and, I, and it's just it's grievous, but guess where my mind goes? I, mean, I start thinking, like, why? And then, I, and then I start thinking about being the parent of, of a, a person who was in that bar. And you just don't know if your daughter's okay or not. You don't know if your son's okay or not. And I imagine the grief and the questioning, Lord, why did my son have to get shot in the heart and the guy next to him didn't get shot at all? Or why did my son get shot and, and, and in the heart and the guy next to him only got shot in the arm? Like, where is the justice here? There has to be a reason. There has to be an answer for this. We know that the earth is fragile. We know that people have their own wills that they can do horrible things. But we don't know why some live and some die. And yet our minds still clamor for answers. Why? What are we left with? We're left with the brother that God gives us in our anguish. God gives us a brother and a friend. Remember Jesus crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why? (laughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God in flesh asked the question we ask, why? And he didn't get an answer. He didn't get an answer for three days. And when the answer came, the answer was not logic. The answer was not the reason that we search for. The answer was resurrection. The answer was new life. The answer overwhelmed the question. That's what God gives us through Christ. He doesn't provide the reasons. 
He doesn't provide the logic, but he does provide restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. Paul writes about this in just the most, in the the boldest terms. He says that all things will be reconciled in Christ. All things will be reconciled. And then in Colossians, he says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. When we hear that God will reconcile all things or has reconciled all things in Christ, what he means is everything. Like What he really means is everything. All things will be made right, reconciled through Christ. The wisdom that we now cherish, (laughs) the wisdom that the deepest of the deep, think of the deepest thought that you've ever had or you ever were, befuddled by and confused by, will at the end of the day sound like one plus one equals two. But even then, the answers to our deepest questions will not come in the form of logic. They will come in the form of actual reconciliation, actual redemption, actual making of all things new. I don't know about you, but I will trade my desire for an answer for the making right of all things. I will trade. I'll make that trade. I will make that trade. And I will endeavor as a follower of Christ to, to no longer pursue answers as the highest form of enlightenment or whatever, but I will pursue Christ as the reconciler of all things, as the fulfiller of of all of my deepest anguish, as the, as the, 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 the bringer about of peace, when my heart just turns and says, no, this can't be. He will make all things right. Before healing this guy, before giving him sight, Jesus... He gives an interesting answer to the disciples' question about who caused the man's blindness. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Sometimes bad things happen. And then God brings meaning and purpose into the awful situation. Now be careful here. God did not cause this man to be born blind so that however many years later, Jesus could be walking along and give him the gift of sight. That's not what Jesus is saying here.
God reveals his work. He reveals his kingdom coming in all circumstances. In this circumstance, it's easy to reveal it. Because here is a hopeless case. Now remember, this is a hugely important distinction to make. Because we often find this in the face of calamity. uh, People's desire not to have an answer why. Because maybe... Maybe you can handle chaos. Uh, but instead, there's this very Christian-y kind of weighing the, the, the bad things that have happened with the good that has resulted. You, you know, so um, like Hurricane Katrina hits, you know, and thousands are dead, you know, whatever. And, and you can say, yeah, but, you know, a bunch of people showed God's love and wasn't it great the way the world responded, blah, blah, blah. All this good came about because of that. Well, there's no scales like this. This is a very artificial way of dealing with calamity. This is not the way Jesus explains calamity. He says, God is at work. God is at work in all circumstances. Even in our text, Jesus sends us out. He takes this opportunity to say, we're, we're out there. We're doing this in all circumstances. We're, we're living this out. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. We must work Oh, that we is alarming. God in flesh turns to his pitiful little disciples, and he turns to pitiful little us, and he says, we must work. While it's still day, we've got a job to do. Later, Jesus makes this we even more emphatic when he tells his disciples this. And he tells us this. He says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The Father sent me, the one and only God-man, so now I'm sending you. In the same light, I am sending you. In, in the very same way that Jesus is called the light of the world, he then later says, you, you are the light of the world. We must work. We must work while it's still day. Do you realize on a day-to-day basis that you are the light of the world? Do you realize on a day-to-day basis that, that this is how Jesus looks at you? Uh, one sent the way he himself was sent. To do the work that God has to do in the world today. Sometimes it's easy to see this connectedness, right? Uh, sometimes it's easy uh, to see like where, where maybe our life's work and our discipleship kind of come together. Uh, most of the time it's awfully difficult. I mean, maybe, like, like, like when I'm in Tanzania with the youth, oh, it's going to be like, wow, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're involved in, in God's work. Look at, look at what we're doing with our partners there in Tanzania. And, and we're building up people's spirits and we're inspiring. And it's just obvious that we're doing 
the works that God wants us to do. But how are we the light of the world? How are we the ones sent into the world when we're in school, when we're on college campuses, when we are working, when we're just sitting at home? How in the world do we live in this way, work in this way? Our speech, our actions, our very lives shine if we are following Christ. Our customers, our clients, our colleagues, our classmates, whoever and whatever else we interact with, We are expressing our trust in Jesus by the way we speak, by the way we live. We live as truth-tellers in a lying marketplace. Uh, In our group of friends, we are the end of every stream of gossip. And these are just the tangible answers. The truth is, wherever you go, whether you... Try to or not, you bring the light of Christ with you. Jesus says we must act with some sense of urgency because night is coming. I've been thinking about all the graduation speeches uh, that are are happening these days, you know, and and, uh, I imagine these phrases are are, are being used, you know. uh, Time is short. Act now. Don't delay. Go for it. You can do it. You know, but this is really what Jesus is saying. Act now. Time really is short. If you know you should be doing something, do it. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Use this day. Finally, after all of this preamble, this conversation about the cause of suffering and then the command to go and act as light of the world, Jesus performs his sign. Remember I said that even the prophets could not heal blindness. Well, even though they couldn't heal blindness, they spoke of a time when blindness would be healed. They spoke of an age to come when the blind would see. Isaiah declares this over and over again, uh, like this in verse, chapter 29, verse 18. On that day the deaf shall hear the words of a scroll, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Jesus announces that the age of God's salvation has come. The age of God's rescue has arrived. So he spits on the ground. You can't make this up. He spits on the ground. Jesus spits on the ground, the earth. The, he uses the stuff of life <laughs> to announce that the kingdom of God's salvation is at hand. And then he picks up his spit 
and the dirt that was around it, and he rubs it into a mud. And he smears it on this guy's eyes. Without explanation or preamble, we're not given all the words that were And he just says, go and wash in the pool called scent. And the man goes and he washes. And our text in the most melodramatic way possible says, he came back able to see. Oh, he didn't just come back. He ran back. He danced back. And, and the, the chaos and, and, and the party that happened around this, you can't imagine the kind of crazy that happened in this community because of this miracle. This is amazing grace. This is, this is just a glimmer, just a, just, a, just a peek into what the reconciliation of all things looks like impossibility of vision becomes vision. Loss becomes gain. I mean, this is the promise that we have in Christ. I mean, look at this guy. He doesn't ask Jesus for anything, does he? Jesus doesn't ask him for anything. He doesn't say, hey, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Do you... Nothing. No preamble, no precondition required, just grace, just God's lavish love. Here is our hope that God will make all things right again. So in Jesus, we have the answer to all of our questions. In Jesus, we have the answer to all of our questions. The answers don't come logically and and maybe mentally understandably. They come in, in the form of restoration. They come with the promise that in him, all things will be made right, restored, made new. This promise comes to us in the in the in the resurrection. The greatest indication of this truth is in the resurrection. All will be well. And if we groan these days with the words, this is just not the way things should be. This is not right. Why? Understand that we have a brother that groans with us and groans more deeply and groans intimately with us. For the time being, we are called out to go. Go and live. Shine the light of Christ. We only have a few days on this earth. Go and shine Christ's light. We do this by the way we live, by the way we work, by the way we play, by the way we drive, by the way we speak by what we choose to do and what we choose not to do. And when we come across the destitute and the hurting, 
we know there but for the grace of God go I. And instead of shying away from the hurting, we, we see and we keep our eyes on those who need God's love most. This means getting messy, maybe even getting muddy. (laughs) And finally, maybe we need a little mud in our eyes this morning. Maybe we need a little, a clarification from God this morning. Maybe we need to see in, in new ways see in the ways that God sees. Maybe we need him to open our eyes. Let's pray.